Well, Merry Christmas again to everyone. On a day like today, it's only fitting to go to one place in Scripture, the logical place for a Christmas message. Open up your Bibles with me to Song of Solomon. <laughs> Don't do that. Some of you are getting very nervous. We will go to the Gospel of Luke. In fact, Brian's scripture reading is the scripture for our message this morning. It's Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This Christmas season, we've been following Luke's account, his record of the birth of Jesus, really the experience that Mary's had. Last Sunday, I preached on Gabriel's revelation to Mary. Gabriel is that messenger angel God sent to inform Mary of this miraculous birth. Last night, Jonathan preached on Mary's song. Mary responds to this news with a great spiritual maturity and an awe and a praise. Well, this morning, the time for her birth has arrived. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Now, the account Brian read is an account of Jesus, his birth, to be sure, But it's also a contrast of two different kings, two different rulers. Though they're kings or rulers, they couldn't be more different. These are two kings who, in one way, both see an opportunity. They see people as an opportunity, but the opportunities they see with people couldn't be more different. In verses 1 through 3 of Luke 2, people here are a resource for the plans of Caesar And in verses 4 to 7, people are recipients for the peace of God. Caesar being one king and God quite another. Well, let's look at the first three verses this morning. It's the plan of Caesar. And in Caesar's plan, people are a resource for his ends. By way of review, verse 1, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Right away, we're confronted with this person named Caesar Augustus. What kind of king is Caesar Augustus? Well, I think it's helpful to begin with his name to answer that question. The word Caesar is a title. Uh, It's another way of saying ruler. There are many Caesars, as there are many kings. Caesar would be a title for a king of Rome. Rome had many Caesars. Augustus served more as a name, but also somewhat as a title. Augustus means revered, or majestic, or great. Caesar Augustus was born Octavius, and he was adopted by the Julius Caesar. And in that position, he became the adopted heir to the Roman Empire. Quite a position to be in. Eventually, he would eliminate all competition for the throne, for the throne often came with competition, and he would successfully rule the Roman Empire for 45 years. By many accounts, he appealed to the regular man, the average Joe. A few examples. In Rome, he founded a postal service a fire department, a police force. These are things that please the populace. 
But at the core, he was still a man. He's fallen in his flesh. A sinner, a man not at peace with God. In fact, Augustus believes himself a god. One inscription, an ancient inscription, reads, quote, Divine Caesar Augustus, son of a god, imperator or commander of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. That's a description that fits God or Jesus. Yet Caesar sees that describing him. And you saw in these first few verses that he's decreed a census. That Greek word for census is dogma. We know that word. It often means teachings or doctrines, but it means more than that. It means declaration. That's exactly how Luke is using it. Caesar issues a declaration. In fact, later, Luke's going to use it again as he writes the book of Acts. In chapter 17, the Jews are complaining to the city authorities in Thessalonica. They're accusing this new Christian of Jason. He's welcoming new Christians. They act contrary to the decrees or declarations of Caesar. They say there's another king named Jesus. And by the way, in that verse, you heard one violation of the decrees of Caesar. It's to declare another king, a king named Jesus. All that comes later. But here we understand that Caesar alone views himself as king alone. In our passage, he's decreeing a census. Now, the word for census is is actually a verb, and some of your translations are going to bear this out. Your verse 1 may read, people should be registered, or should be enrolled. Registered or enrolled are the same word we have as census. But I want you to see that that Luke wants us to understand more. Luke wants us to see exactly what's going on here. Four times in three verses, he uses this word. You see, Jesus enters a world ruled by Rome. Taxes are the reason for the census. The King James Version gets right to it. There went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. You see, Caesar wants his money. Caesar wants his loot. Caesar wants his cheese. Caesar wants his dough. Caesar wants everything that he perceives belongs to him. But I want you to see again that this is bigger than money. And that's the point that Luke is driving at in this passage. He wants you and I to see that Rome has her foot on the neck of Israel. Rome will perform her will. Israel will obey. In this case, she'll pay. This is yet another reminder just who the servant is and who the king is. This is something Rome prided themselves in, something Rome enjoyed to do. But while we're here, I want you to see one other aspect of this passage. It's one problem with the passage. In verse 2, we learn that Caesar's first census took place during the governorship of Quirinius. However, his role as governor didn't begin until 86. That's way too late for the birth of Jesus. 
I've read a variety of explanations that have been put forth, but in the end, we simply don't have the answer for this right now. So did Luke make a mistake? Does the Bible contain errors? Well, the answer to both of those questions is no and no. In the first instance, Luke did a phenomenal job at recording this gospel. I mean, Luke is a man who did his homework. Luke would be the envy of any Ivy League university. This is the man you want as your research assistant. Looking back at chapter 1, verse 3, Luke writes, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. That is to say that Luke has done his homework. And on top of that, He's trying to win this man, Theophilus, to the Christian faith. And if he wishes to win Theophilus to faith, he would not make a simple historical error that could undermine the whole goal. Theophilus Theophilus would easily recognize this. He's, He's aware of facts. This title, most excellent, probably puts him at some high standing, meaning he was educated. This would undermine Luke's goal and Luke's message. And in the second instance, the Bible is inerrant in its original manuscripts. I just want to encourage you this morning that that you and I don't need to move off of a high view of inerrancy of the Bible just because we can't answer this particular question at this time. And the answer may be out there, may yet to be discovered. We'll see you over time. But nevertheless, at the core, you and I are a people who walk by faith, not a blind faith but a faith that is grounded in questions answered 99% of the time. You see, the point I want to make here is that it's okay to have unresolved questions, all the while possess a steadfast and robust faith in Jesus Christ. More than that, we have a faith in the one who decides what to reveal and when to reveal it. To our text, Caesar's plan this morning is to tax and subdue the people. Well, what's the role of people then? If we understand who Caesar is, if we understand Caesar's plan, how about people? Well, quite simply, people are to pay up. In the eyes of Rome, this is the role of people. People exist for me, the Roman Empire. And by the way, when it comes to taxes, Caesar here, he's seeking not only a census tax... But he's taxing customs, there's import and export taxes, there's toll taxes, there's crop taxes, there's sales taxes, there's property taxes. And more than that, in their system, the fat cats never got their paws dirty. There was always a layer underneath the Romans who did that collecting for them. You might be familiar with one of these men, his name was Matthew, the writer of the gospel. He's the one who collected taxes until that wonderful day when Jesus came along and invited him to follow him. And Matthew did it. He left the tax booth behind and followed Christ. It's also worth noting that people are also, at times, conscripted or pressed into a military draft if Rome needed them. The point I want to make is that Caesar believed himself a god And he ruled people like slaves. And this is the world in which God sent 
His Son. And for God, this is normal operating procedure. Think back with me to the Old Testament. Consider a man named Sennacherib, the ruler of Assyria. His armies knocked on the very doors, the very gates of Jerusalem. They came that close. Yet God had told Hezekiah, the king of Israel, not to fear. Don't worry, Hezekiah. And we learn in that account that God controls the human psyche. Behold, I will put in him, in Sennacherib, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land, which he did. Consider Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar reigned as a pagan king of Babylon. Three times in the book of Jeremiah, God calls him, quote, my servant. God's going to use Nebuchadnezzar as a divine rod of punishment. He's going to bring Israel into exile or into deportation. Consider Cyrus. Cyrus ruled Persia and neither was he looking for God. But in Isaiah 45 verse 1, the Lord calls him, quote, my anointed. God would then use him to restore the people back to the land. You see, God has been working out his plans through human kings throughout all of history. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes, Proverbs 21.1. You see, decisions by men like Caesar... They've always flowed like water, always free and always in accord with their own human nature. But at the same time, no decision has ever been made not guided by God. He directs them wherever he wishes. Caesar meant to flood his coffers with money, while God meant to flood this globe with grace. That brings us to our second plan this morning. In verses 4 through 7, it's a second plan. Plan number two, people are, a, are recipients for the peace of God. People are recipients for the grace of God. That's in direct contrast to Caesar's view of men. In verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Well, we began our last point by asking, what kind of God is this Caesar? What kind of king or what kind of man is he? Now we can ask that of God. What kind of king is God? Well, like Caesar, the Lord God ordains. He decrees. You need go no further than Genesis chapter 1. Ten times God said. Ten times it took place. Isaiah 46 verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done before, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. 
like Caesar. God is benevolent. Remember, Caesar is a man of goodwill, at least to a point. He's a man of goodwill to his own people, to his fellow Romans. He performed many acts to bless the populace. God does the same. In Psalm 34, verse 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. But in contrast to Caesar, this goodness of God, it stretches far and wide. It goes to the ends of the globe. It goes further than just one group of people. Because in the person of Jesus Christ, God gives grace to anyone. He seeks to give forgiveness to everyone who believes upon Jesus Christ. You see, you got the sense there that Caesar cares very little for those outside of his kingdom, outside of his people. But God gives grace to all. He welcomes peace with any who come to him. So while Caesar is advancing his plan in Luke chapter 2, so too is God. And I see in this passage the salvation of God coming through at least five different means. First, it comes through the worst of times. God's salvation comes through the worst of times, and this is already implied in our message this morning. Israel is in a very lowly state. This is a nation who has fallen far from her former glory. I mean, you've read the stories if you've read the Old Testament. There was this golden era under King David. He's still remembered as the greatest among kings. Things were great back then. Then there was the wisdom of Solomon. Israel was the destination for wisdom. But those days are long gone. In fact, by the time the Old Testament comes to a close, the prophets are condemning the religious leadership. They're decrying this rampant injustice taking place among the people. They are calling people to repent and to return to God. And it's in this dumpster of a nation that God sends forth Jesus. Secondly, God's salvation came through Caesar's census. And this is what put Joseph and Mary in the town of Bethlehem. Verse 4, because, because Joseph was of the house and family of David. That means that, that he could trace his family tree back to David. Maybe some of you have taken those tests where you can see who's in your family tree, see where your ancestors were from. If Joseph took that, it would point right back to David. We know that Caesar is interested in accurate records. He doesn't want to miss out on any dime or quarter that people might have. But God wants his son in Bethlehem. God wants his son born in Bethlehem. And while Caesar works out his plan, putting Joseph there, God works out his plan, birthing Jesus there. Well, thirdly, God's salvation came through prophetic words. This is an Old Testament prophet named Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. That prediction is that 
This king is going to come from a little insignificant town. This prophet, or excuse me, this prophecy came centuries before Luke chapter 2. And it began with a word. It began with the word but. He says, but as for you, Bethlehem. And this is a contrast in Micah chapter 5. You see, in the verse previous to the one I read to you, Jerusalem, with all of her size and her population, Jerusalem, this mighty capital city, Jerusalem with royalty and religion, Jerusalem with a palace and a temple, she was corrupted. And God would not send forth his king through this great city. The king would come from elsewhere, from this little hamlet, this little cove, this town called Bethlehem. In fact, if you looked at a map and you traced the journey that Mary and Joseph took from Nazareth to Bethlehem, they have to pass right by Jerusalem. It's only about five miles north of Bethlehem. There's something almost poetic about this journey, about the fulfillment of what God predicted in Micah 5. They're going to pass right by this great city. It's almost a picture of God passing by all the religiosity and all the power and glory of Jerusalem, going for what is more humble and more significant. From there will come Messiah. So God brings forth his son in Bethlehem. And it's in that perfect window of time. Uh, it's, it's after they've arrived and they register. It's before they, before they depart to go elsewhere. It's in that window of time that Jesus is born. And fourthly, then, God's salvation came through adverse circumstances. God's salvation came through adverse circumstances. The shortest route from Nazareth to Bethlehem was about 90 miles. It's a climb. Luke writes, quote, they went up. The elevation increased as they went along. We know that Mary would have been at least three months pregnant. If you look back at verse 56 in chapter 1, Luke records Mary spent the first three months of her pregnancy with Elizabeth. If their trip to Bethlehem occurred any time after that, it would have been all the more difficult. I mean, this is a long-distance walk. By the way, there's no mention of a donkey ride, though it's not impossible. Either seem undesirable activities. Walking that far, riding a donkey in the second or third trimester, I don't think that would be comfortable. But more than that, if they took the shortest route, they went through an area called Samaria. This is a whole separate matter. That's going to be the shortest, the most direct route. And I'll tell you, there was no love lost between Samaritans and Jews. These two groups hated one another. There would be a mutual disdain between them. They could have been easy marks for robbers. Perhaps they traveled in a group, giving them protection. Certainly a bullseye for every bitter Samaritan who hated Jews. God's salvation came through adverse circumstances. Well, lastly, God's salvation came through humble means. God's salvation came through humble means. There is a palace and there is a throne, 
sort of. According to tradition, Jesus was born in a cave near an inn. Today, if you visited the Middle East, the Church of the Nativity stands where this cave is supposedly located. You can go down into the crypt of the church. There's a nativity grotto. This is going to be the underground space where the cave used to be, and the exact location is marked by a 14-point star tiled into the floor. By the way, while you're there, if you wish, you could travel a few miles north to Rachel's tomb and buy a magnet of the birth scene for $3.99. The word for inn in verse 7 is better translated as lodging place. In fact, that's how Luke uses the word over in chapter 22, verse 11. In that passage, Jesus is going to send off his disciples to locate a place for them to celebrate Passover. You shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? Same word for in used in our verse. Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover? And on top of this, there's another Greek word used for hotel or for in, and Luke does not use that word. He's aware of it. He uses it elsewhere. It's the destination for the man who helped the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn. A different word than what we're learning about this morning. I remember growing up, the pictures in the Christmas storybooks of that angry innkeeper standing behind him, lit this room. It looked all warm and cozy, but he's closing the door on Mary and Joseph. This understanding of the word in does damage to our Hollywood version. If we're thinking about the door slamming shut only to be drowned out by the diabolical laugh of Christopher Walken, we can dispense with that. See, the houses of the time contained a few different levels, at least some of them. There would be animal quarters on the ground level with the residential quarters up above. And that may explain why the throne, or the manger, if you will, is where Jesus was laid when born. The manger was an animal trough. Again, if we want to do a deep dive into the word, it could also be used as an animal stall. Luke, again, he used that word elsewhere in chapter 13 to describe the stall of an animal and not just the manger or the trough. But the point here this morning is that the palace and this manger... This is where Jesus was born. And I think we understand now that this was no Thomas Kincaid painting. I would say that the manger scenes we have don't quite capture what happened here. This is a very dimly lit, dark room. There's no power at the time, no electricity, there's no lights. To see in the pitch black of that room, one needed fire or a lantern. This entire scene, the birth of Jesus, is going to play out by lamp. I think what you don't see in here is also noteworthy. In this birth scene, there are no medical instruments. There's no sterile blankets. There's no epidurals. There's no nurses waiting in the wings to swoop in and help out. 
And what you also don't see in this passage are the germs and the pathogens and the bacteria, all of that that's present in a filthy animal stall. If you close your eyes to listen, you'd hear an awkward chorus of farm animals in the background making their various farm animal noises. Probably the heavy breathing from a young mother. She's crumpling that straw in her hands, trying to find relief in her birthing. And if you took a breath, if you could smell that room, it's a smell of manure. It's the scent of barn animals. It's the whiff of a wet, decaying straw. It always combines to make its own unusual odor. And then there's Joseph reaching out his hands. He's the descendant of a king, but boy, this man is powerless before all the sweat and the blood and the pain. He has carpenter hands, remember. He's not trained for this kind of work. He would have grabbed onto that wet, slippery baby, and with that breath of air, the first breath of air, it would have been a loud scream as Jesus was born. So God's king has come. And he came through the plans of another, through the plans of Caesar. And God sent a king through a king. So this morning, I want you to consider the world around you. As you even engage the circumstances of your life, if you think about what's happening right now, about what is to come next year, I want you to see that God's plans are working out. And they're working out through the plans of another. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that God works out all things after the counsel of his will. And that was true with the birth of Jesus, and that's true in our lives today. In all ways, Christmas is about Jesus the Christ. But our passage this morning reminds us, too, that Christmas is about the providence and the power and the sovereignty of God as well. That's true for our lives this morning. That's true for our lives in the year to come. Let's pray together. Father, your wisdom is beyond comprehension. The Christmas story is so familiar to us, and there's a danger in that. I hope this morning, Father, we we saw that your power is unfamiliar and distant, but wholly present and powerful. Oh, Lord, I pray for us as we depart from here that our minds would be focused on your wisdom and your power, on the beauty of the birth of Christ, and on the many gifts we receive as a result. Thank you, Jesus, for coming into this world. We love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.